Hello and welcome to Additive Intellect, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest episode of our Innovators on Innovators series. This time, Candice Miaski of the University of Sheffield's Mechanical Engineering Department sits down with Alex Kingsbury, an AM Industry Fellow at RMIT University in Melbourne. Sitting on opposite ends of the world, the pair discuss polymer and metal additive manufacturing, the importance of developing standards to allow academics and industrialists to understand each other, and their wishes for the future of AM. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. I'll now leave you with Candice and Alex, who begin by explaining their entries into the 3D printing industry. very very much for agreeing to do this um i know we've not met in person we've spoken a bit on twitter which is an interesting way of getting to know people now um but yeah i thought we have different backgrounds different experience and everything so i thought it might be nice for us just to have a chat about where we've come from what we're doing what the industry is doing these days most definitely thank you so much for um i mean it was this was your idea and it was such a good one um which was you know the innovators on innovators um podcast series and we were supposed to choose someone from outside of the tct yep. <laughs> advisory board but in fact we're both on the the advisory board and i'm i'm really and you know what i would have chosen you but we weren't allowed to but then you asked if we could bend the rules which is always i feel a good you know um principle to take in life <laughs> yeah it's always a good start <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah I'm really pleased to be here well and I know obviously a bit about your your background and everything but I, I think the thing that I don't really know is where, how did you come to be an additive in the first place because I, I think you were from a different background in the first place and then you kind of came into the field but what was your what was your route into it um yeah so I'm an engineer by training um I did chemical engineering and uh I worked in industry for a little bit um doing sort of more um mining and oil and gas type consulting work and um after a little while doing that I moved to CSIRO which is uh and probably the best way to describe what CSIRO does if if anyone isn't aware is uh, it's kind of like a Fraunhofer type thing for Australia research research institute um, or you know the national lab system in the US Um, so it's our equivalent here in Australia and the idea is that it's very much industrial research that's focused on delivering value to the Australian economy Um, and when I joined I got to work in uh, the titanium program um, which we had a really big effort in because, you know, titanium is uh, something that we have a lot of natural resources in in Australia, um, but we we ship it off uh, at, at very, very cheap rates, um, you know, in a mined form, um, but we don't make any, we, we don't really extract any value out of the, the, the titanium supply chain. Um, so what we were doing was um, working on um, projects that delivered more value to Australia um by extracting value out of that titanium supply chain so thinking about how can we make titanium metal differently um, so that it's cheaper lower cost um, easier um, because titanium by the way is a pain to work with (laughs) Um, and then once we have it in that in in a titanium form how then do we go and do our downstream processes you know whether it's whether it's you know it's it's rolling it um cold spraying it or 3d printing it 
And so that's really how I got into 3D printing. We got our first 3D printer about a year after I joined. So I really was able to be there from the beginning of, of CSIRO getting into 3D printing. Um, and then was, um, yeah, really saw that through. And um, it, it is what I, I followed my career through the progression, I feel like, of, of 3D printing and our experience of 3D printing with titanium specifically, but we moved into other metals and then we moved into, we got other printers and it, it really, <laughs> it really grew a lot. And um, in a, in a lot of ways, uh, our experience of 3D printing at, at CSIRO and mine um, was that uh, the, the interest in it grew along with the public interest in it as well. You know, so we had this enormous public interest in it. But um, Candice, you started in additive manufacturing though, like a long time ago. Like, <laughs> like let's not say a like, long time ago. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I I feel like such an old timer saying, you know, yeah, it was 2011, right? Um, mm -hmm. And 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 I feel very actually very lucky and privileged that I can I can like say that um, that I that I had that experience. But I mean, when was it that you first got into 3D printing? So I started about, it was about 20 years ago now. Um, and it's interesting you say that because when I started, there were definitely this group of old school people who'd been in it from the beginning. And I remember sitting there and thinking like, my word, but I like wish the 90s? I'd been there. Yeah, the like early 90s. first came out and it was, and I, I remember being really almost kind of envious of those people and saying like, how great would it have been to have been there at the beginning? But then I think we keep seeing these maybe every 10, 20 years, like this kind of resurgence of new, new stuff that happens. And it's like, yeah. oh, now I'm not kind of like the oldest school person, but there was this kind of new getting into it. Um, it's interesting what you say about the titanium though, because I think a lot of the time, and, and a lot of my work is in materials, albeit on the polymer side. And we spend a lot of time saying, we've got these processes, like which materials can we put in them? What can we do something interesting with? So I think it's really interesting hearing from that background of, okay, we've got this material, what can we do with it? And then one of those things is, is 3D printing. Cause that's kind of the very opposite from the way that I've been used to having those, those conversations. It's, it's more often, you know, we, we don't have a huge amount of materials currently for the processes that we work on. So the powdered polymer processes. Um, and often it is very much looking for those materials that will work in it. Um, mm rather than that kind of other way around of we've got this material what can we do with it so I quite like that as a an approach and it makes perfect sense we've got loads of it we don't do as much with it as we could do um but I, th I think for me the the interesting thing with additive has always been there are just so many possibilities for it um and so you know when you're I first you're not saying it's a solution trying to find a problem are you <laughs> <laughs> sometimes maybe um Little bit. <laughs> well and I think it's there's a lot for us to do to perhaps educate people which I know is you spend a lot of time working with industry as well but there, there does sometimes seem to be this this attitude of we know 3d printing's great we need to be doing something with it and actually sometimes starting with well what problem are you trying to fix with this um and I, I think it was very clear when it first came out it was we want to do prototyping and mm. we know that prototyping can be costly. We know it can take a long time. We know we're not doing things as efficiently as we could. Here's a great way that we can do that. And so, so I think early on, there was this real need for it and a real push for it in certain areas. 
And, and now we've almost got to the stage where lots of companies are saying, well, we, we need to be using this because other people are using it without perhaps that thought behind it of, well, what do we actually need to work on? What do we need to use it for? What are the bits of our business that it would be good for? Because it's rarely going to be useful to everything that you do. Yeah. And, and so I kind of, I enjoy that side of it, actually, sometimes talking with industry and saying, well, the first thing you need to do is, is figure out where you would use this, where you've got areas that it could add value to what you're doing, and then kind of take it from there. And I think perhaps from there, there's a natural progression of, well, then these are the processes we should be considering. These are the types of materials. These are, this is how you would implement it. But starting with that, starting with that, what problem we need to solve is probably a quite important part of the process. Yeah, and I mean, I, I found that the conversations, I mean, obviously you, as you would expect, have matured a lot over the years. Um, so initially people, uh, the, the, the lab that I worked in at, at CSIRO got a lot of um, foot traffic, right? We got so many people that were just interested in what we were doing. And often you'd have visitors that would come into another part of CSIRO and, um, and their host would say, oh, would you like to see our 3D printing lab, you know? And they'd be like, oh, what, yeah, what's that? Because we did do a great job of really showcasing mm -hmm. the technology and, and the parts we were making and stuff. And um, so we got a lot of traffic coming through our lab. And um, uh, and, and I remember it, the, the questions went from what is 3D printing and at to, because I don't even know, you know, tell me about it. And then it went to... Um, wow you can 3d print with metal really you know yeah. i thought it was just plastics um and then it went to um to to oh uh you know i hear it's a rapid prototyping tool um and then we would and, and that was really very much at the stage when we were saying no 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 you know it's it's um we're, we're using these end use applications you know these are parts for serial production now um so Definitely, I mean, the, the conversations matured really in line with the industry, but but always with a lag, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it's oh. funny on the materials side, right, because uh, I always found that as researchers and, you know, I mean, researchers love material science, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's always just yeah. such a ripe area <laughs> for research um, and so easy to get excited about new materials. Um, but... Uh, when you're working with industry, it's just like, no, 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 you're not changing the material, you know, and, and this is a, um, it's a, it's really a philosophy, you know, a, a, an approach to AM that I really understand and appreciate where they're coming from when they say that. Um, but to the point where it's kind of like, well, I use aluminium for this application. So I only want to use aluminium for, for, you know, this 3D printed mm -hmm. product. And you're like, but it's a completely different alloy of aluminium. Like it, it's it, the very different properties. Like, are you sure? no, 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 no. Aluminium, aluminium is what we use. So that's what we're using. And I'm kind of like, oh, I feel like this is not really thinking things through properly. Mm -hmm. um, so I find sometimes that there is very much a disconnect between uh you know, how excited we get as, as researchers around material science and the possibility with materials and new materials and what can we do with this? We can, you know, how does this respond in a 3D printing process um, versus the conversations happening in industry, which is, we, you know, no, we are de-risking. We, we're going to make this acceptable to a board. Um, mm -hmm. We need to be able to pitch this to our customer. Um, don't, don't you even dream of changing the material on us? You know, it's like, oh, sorry, I'm actually changing material. You know, if it's like, no, 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 different alloy doesn't matter. No, no issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it's, we see it quite a lot throughout 
all the areas of it, because we see the same in academia, actually, of sometimes it is just the language you're using, but it's also the motivation. And I think the thing I've noticed with industry in particular is you're quite often talking to someone on a technical level who gets all the nuances and understands all of those different things. But actually, especially in a big company, they're having to kind of pitch that up the chain and up the chain and mm. up the chain. <clears throat> and so you end up with them convincing the person above them and then that person trying to convince further upwards and so I think it is it's interesting that you get that difference between what we understand from the technical side is perhaps the most exciting but what's that person at the top of the chain <clears throat> who has to sign off the money for it what's mm. what's going to get them and and this idea of risk I think is really important because we don't have we don't always know exactly how things are going to behave um, we have for our processes we have a really good idea of what's going to happen when we take the parts out the machine we can test them you know we that this is how that part's going to behave but I think another one of the things there as well is this idea of of long-term behavior of parts so you know out of the machine mm. it's going to be exactly the properties well let's say more or less exactly the properties that you're hoping for but are those properties still going to be there in you know, whatever the lifetime of your product is. Um, and that's something else that we encounter quite a bit with industry is, is, well, the risk to us is not just that we're changing the process and possibly the material, but it's also what if that material or that part doesn't continue to perform over the timescales we need it to. And so yeah, I think there's quite a bit of work there as well in, in if we want to be convincing people to use it is to not just be looking at that really short-term bit of it, but looking at, you know, what, what performance do you need out of this and over what time scale? You know, are you looking for something that's going to last 10 years and it's going to perform the same? Is it a very kind of quick turnover part? You know, is it like a mobile phone where it needs to behave a certain way, but actually you're always trying to upsell and, and get people to upgrade and kind of get the next thing and then the next thing? And, and it's, it's those kind of timescales that I think are important as well, is can we guarantee that this will work for you over the time you need it to yeah but I mean like fatigue life is just such a harder nut to crack mm -hmm. right um and and also just in terms of um just just projects that manage you know or, or investigate fatigue life they're more expensive they require more testing they require way more you know so much more validation like tensile tests are so easy yeah <laughs> <laughs> We love a good tensile bar, right? Everyone loves a tensile bar. <laughs> but it is, to be fair, a, a pretty first pass kind of look at mechanical properties mm -hmm. and, yeah, and material performance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, ex and exactly, you're right. We should be really probably moving a little bit beyond the tensile bars. So we still need to do the tensile bars. But, but yeah, um, let's not but, scrap the tensile bars. Let's no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think the other thing is interesting so I spoke to someone years ago at a conference who said um, he basically set up a company which put academics and industrialists in a room together and he kind of acted as the facilitator between them um, and he said the reason for this was because he'd sat in a meeting a couple of years before where a bunch of academics and a bunch of industrialists had all been in the room and he said I just sat there and watched and everyone was talking at cross purposes and it comes back to your point about the research. It's like, oh, here's the really exciting research we're doing that could be useful to you. And then the industrialists were talking about the, the things that were important to them. And he'd managed to make an entire business out of translating what academics and industrialists were saying to each other into a way that kind of 
wow. help them meet in the middle. <laughs> um, and, it, and it's just, it was, and it really stuck with me because then every time I was talking to people from industry, I, I kind of had this guy's voice in my head saying like, you need to be speaking the same language and you need to be thinking about the things, you know, and it, it comes down to in every case, I think, what's their motivation? Like what's, what's their reason for wanting to try these technologies? What's the, what's the barriers to them taking it? Um, and, and he said it was just, it was really interesting seeing that academics and industrialists traditionally speak very different languages. And actually, and I think we're doing better at it as we kind of mm. get more of this crossover. But but it is interesting trying to figure those things out. So so on the language, I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you. So um, one of the things that I do is I sit on um, our Australian Standards um, Committee for Additive Manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 look, you know, really. Uh, our, the committee role is primarily about adopting additive manufacturing standards as Australian standards. And to be honest, that's that's quite an easy job because, mm -hmm. I mean, we all work to the same standards, um, international standards anyway. Um, and it's just a matter of, um, I wouldn't quite say rubber stamping because, you know, I certainly do read them. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, it, for, for for Australia, it's an opportunity to be able to sit on those international committees and to have a seat at the table and, and to have a say. But getting back to my point, which is I do have to read the standards um, and make sure that they're acceptable to, to the Australian context um, and give them the go ahead. And one of the standards I was reading had your name on it. Um, and you had done some work to support the development of that standard. I believe it was for measurement or something. Was quite a while ago. Um, it was a long time ago, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, how important do you think you, you've obviously been involved in standards development? How important do you think they are for us all being, you know, us, us as a, you know, not only just research and you know academia and, and industry, but also, you know, industry to industry, um, you know, country to country, um, you know, market vertical to market vertical. Mm -hmm. How important do you think that is in, in us being able to speak the same language? I, I think it's ridiculously important, honestly. Um, so I think for years we had this thing where without standardization, anyone can just say anything, right? And you mm. know, we get these properties and we get this and we get this. And so I think it's it's very important, especially from an end user perspective, to be able to look at something and say, you've quoted a tensile strength of 40 megapascals. So what does that actually mean? And, and obviously in additive, there were lots of things there about are you quoting um, properties for parts built in the vertical direction, horizontally, like what was your orientation? Because we know that has an effect. You know, things like what were the parameters you're using? What were your testing parameters? So I think there's the, the side of using the standards, but I think a lot of it comes down to reporting. And actually, if I come to that and I look at some values or I look at some measurement data, I need to be able to know exactly how you've done it. And I think that's one of the things that was very much missing was you'd see a number, but you wouldn't have any of the context behind it of how the parts have been produced, how exactly they've been tested. And so without that kind of broad context, you don't really, it's, it's just kind of a number. And it might be a number that's somewhere near a true number, but it's not, it's not something you can pin it down. You can't have confidence in it though, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. Um, and I think other people, I spoke to someone once who was talking about um, flame retardancy <clears throat> and, and they were saying exactly the same thing. They were like, but quite often people say, oh, it's flame retardant. And it was like, well, okay, yeah, what does that mean? What standards do you use? 
Um, we've been doing some work in a completely different area, actually looking at antibacterial functionality for parts. Um, and that's really interesting, again, because it's a whole different world of testing, but it's the same thing of, you know, what, what standards are we trying to use? We found there's not a lot of standards or standard protocols for the things that we want to do. But again, it comes back to this idea of just include everything, right? So, so tell us everything you've done, because then we can kind of, we can recreate that, we can test yeah. using the same procedures. But, but yeah, so, so I think standardizing what we're doing is a good thing. But I think even more important is standardizing the way we report it. So at least, you know, I send you some data and you can say, well, I know how she tested that. I know exactly what was done. You can perhaps infer some other things from that and say, well, she said these parts were built in the vertical direction. So possibly if we were building them horizontally, they might be a little bit higher properties, that kind of thing. But but you can you, you can kind of put your expertise into it as well and say, actually, yes, I'm confident that this number is a, a good number. I could do something with those parts or well, that doesn't seem to have been very robust. Maybe I need to think about it. You know, maybe as a company, you want to then go do your own testing according. Yeah, yeah. Then you need to go spend your own money to go and do mm -hmm. your own lot of testing. You know, which which essentially, you know, at the end of the day, it, like it's a waste of resources. Um, and if we all were working off a common guidebook, we wouldn't have to do the you know the rework. And um, I also I've seen that um, standards. Uh, you know, I mean, even outside of additive, but say in the materials world, you know, when you've got so many different standards for materials, um, that's, you know, it's essentially the same thing. Um, but, but to have all these different standards, mean you have to keep a number of different lines, which means more inventory, which, you know, so these are, these are kind of issues where standards can actually really um, help address uh, you know, the biz, biz, business issues, mm -hmm. like that can kind of make or break a business, really. Um, but, you know, one of my bugbears about, you know, standards and, and speaking the same language has been the use of trade terms that in, in additive that have, um, and, I, and look, there is a reason we have trade terms and they're important for many commercial reasons. Um, but I do find that there's been this like, real misunderstanding about additive because of the trade terms that we've been using so for example you know laser powder bed fusion um so many people that will come into learning about 3d printing um will hear all of all of these different little acronyms mm -hmm. and not know that they're actually the same thing it's all laser yeah. powder bed fusion right <laughs> Um, and then the worst offender is the uh, DMLS, you know, and everyone thinks it stands for sintering. Um, and it, it's, it's like, no, we're not doing sintering anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, then, and then it kind of assumes that our parts are not of, you know, very high densities and, and things. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of those names have really stuck from the very beginning, which makes sense, right? You know, you, yeah. you start some stuff off, you give it a name. Um, but I, we find that as well, that it's actually, I think probably I find sometimes it's that people think 3D printing means a very specific process as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so you'll talk to people and, and say so one of my biggest bugbears actually is everyone thinks that polymer 3D printing is FDM or extrusion-based processes. And it's like... Or material extrusion. We should yes, use exactly. the exact terms, yeah. It's like, and then you kind of... And I, someone actually said to me after giving a talk once, um, they came up to me at lunchtime and said, oh, I had no idea they were polymer powder-based AM processes. Um, and they said, oh, I knew there were metal powder AM processes, 
and I knew there were polymer extrusion processes, but like they literally had no idea that there was anything other than those two kind of distinctions. Yeah, um, and so, so I think we also sometimes when, and again, it's never, I don't find it's the technical people I'm talking to in a company who have that, but when you sometimes speak to people slightly removed from that area, there's often a kind of, I want to say a slight negativity about it in, oh, we tried 3D printing and it didn't work. And then you're kind of oh, trying yeah. to dig into, well, 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 what 3D because, printing did you use? <laughs> because you bought the, uh, the, the $200 printer down mm-hmm. from your local hardware shop probably and exactly went, ah, 3D, 3d printing doesn't work <laughs> yeah and, and so that kind of there's also that thing that actually I think if we were more descriptive so I try and I, I don't always get it right but I always try to say something like powdered polymer additive manufacturing rather than just polymer am or you know whatever it might be just to kind of get that that point across and I feel like if I say it enough people will start to kind of hear the words and, and register that there are are these different processes because I think we end up with yeah if you kind of if as soon as I say the words additive manufacturing or 3d printing you have this negative impression of something you did that didn't work you know because you used the wrong process or in fact because you were using the same process but 20 years ago and you know think things have definitely improved since then right our, our processes are still not perfect there's still lots of of research to be done but you know it's it's not the same as it was 20 years ago today's episode is sponsored by 3d systems here sam green 3d systems professional printer category manager discusses advancements in polymer materials to increase am repeatability productivity and part performance know that 3D printing has been moving for some time now from a predominantly prototyping tool to a manufacturing tool. And the real end game really is for 3D printing not to replace traditional manufacturing, but to support that adding breadth and depth and agility and complexities are where it's uh, really required. SLS is a great contender for producing uh, plastic, true plastic parts, thermoplastics in PA12, nylons. However, the drawback of many thermoplastic technologies has been the process by which these individual layers of the parts are melded together. So large thermal discrepancies can occur typically across either a single part where you display different mechanical properties at one end of the part and different mechanical properties at the other end. And the same is true if you have a batch of parts. But what we've really done, we've created the new SLS 380 3D printer. And this is designed to deliver consistent and repeatable parts. So we've installed eight individually controlled heaters. And then we've installed a high resolution IR camera that's able to take 100,000 thermal data samples from within the build chamber every second. So the system's algorithm is able to quickly identify any areas where there's high thermal gradient uh, or very low thermal gradient, and then it immediately adjusts the duty cycle of the relevant heater to remove that thermal discrepancy and ensure a more consistent sintering process. And ultimately this uh, temperature stability creates significantly higher part yields and ultimately a more efficient process and even lower part costs. You guys have talked a lot about advancing the science and one of those areas is photopolymer resins. Can you just elaborate on how you're leveraging that to deliver production grade part performance there? We've been able to develop a series of novel patented chemistries and these have really opened the door to the first true production ready photopolymers for additive manufacturing. So we started this process for the figure four 3D printer with our tough black 20 material. This along with other production 
production grade materials that we've released since then, all these materials are tested to demonstrate that they can retain most of their mechanical properties, typically up to eight years indoor and two years outdoor. 30 years ago, 3D Systems invented the SLA 3D printing uh, technology, uh, which uses a vector laser to scan and cure resins in a vat. In contrast to that, the figure four, it still uses a vat, of course, but it replaces that laser with a projector-based imaging system that cures a whole layer at a time rather than point by point. So the great advantage of this is, of course, uh, speed. Figure four is unique in that it is a non-contact membrane technology, which means the part does not come into contact with a transparent layer at the bottom of the print tray. So the end game has always been to port over the revolutionary material advances we've made from the projector-based figure four to our SLA range, such as the Pro X800. Back in July, we launched the first of these materials. It's called the Accurate AMX Rigid Black, a high-strength uh, production-grade SLA material with really good environmentally stabilized uh, properties that can withstand years of indoor, outdoor UV and humidity exposure. It's ideal for large one-to-one -one scale automotive, consumer durable mounts, frames, jigs, fixtures, or internal frames in things like such as uh, white goods. But taken together, we now have a very powerful solution mix when it comes to resins. If you need small batch quantities of tens to hundreds of thousands of production grade plastic parts, the figure four is an excellent solution. And now if you need large one-to-one -one scale, large production parts, we now have our SLA platform with the first in our range of Acura AMX materials. To learn more about long-term resin performance and industrial scale SLS workflow solutions, visit mytct.co forward slash 3D systems pod or mytct.co forward slash pod SLS. bit about the work that you do because you do really most correct me if I'm wrong but most of your work with um powdered polymer processes mm -hmm. is that right yeah. and, so, and every time we talk about this on Twitter and occasionally we'll 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 talk about you know plastics versus metals uh -huh. um and I just I, every time you bring it up and I want to just repeat that line from the graduate to you and I think I've possibly <laughs> yes. posted a couple of gifts in the past which is just like one word, plastics. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I, I'd say now's probably a good time to make a small confession, which is my first experience of additive manufacturing was actually um, on direct metal lasers. Interface processes, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> and then and then somehow somehow I just ended up working on the polymer side. Um, and obviously we joke about it, but you know, there's clearly a, a purpose for for all the different types of, of process. I think. So a lot of the work we do with polymer processes is, I guess, two things. So one is trying to really understand what's going on in the process. And we don't, we have a, a relatively good idea of what the things are that influence our process, but we have a lot less good idea of exact parameters that we need, how those different things, you know, how our material characteristics interact with each other to make a, a good in inverted commas polymer or a bad polymer. Um, so we're doing quite a lot of work trying to really understand different materials, how they behave, but what's driving that behavior. Um, and then on kind of on a related side, but kind of closer to industry, we're doing a lot of work with companies who some of them have been involved in additive for quite a while. Some of them, I think, have just started to wake up to the idea that additive is a, a potentially big area to them. And what's interesting when you work with those companies is 
they have no idea of the kind of nuances of the additive processes. So they're, they're kind of starting as complete beginners often in, in that side and saying, well, tell us everything we need to know about how the processes work and that kind of thing. But then on the flip side, they know everything there is to know about their polymers. And so you can have these really good conversations where you say, you know, if this powder or if this polymer was slightly more like this, you know, that that would be really good. And, and they're very able to sit there and say, well, actually, we could do that really easily. Like that's just a, a tiny change of one parameter on our reactor gives us what you want. Or they're able to say, well, actually, you're basically asking us to start again from scratch and and develop that material differently. And, and so, so that's something that I think brings great value to us actually is working with those companies and starting to understand what's what's kind of an easy fix and what's not an easy fix. And it's very easy as academics, I think, to say, oh, well, all we need to do is just have a material that does this. And so that interaction and that, you know, our understanding of the processes and these companies' understanding of their materials goes really well together. And when you hit that sweet spot of, ah, so something we think would help improve this material is something you can really easily do. I think that's when you have the, the great opportunities yeah. to, to develop things. But I don't think there's, there can be use in working separately on those things. But I'm a big believer actually that that kind of where you bring together those two sides and, and whether it's academia and industry, whether it's additive academia with other fields from outside of that but still in academia you know there's a lot of value to be brought there um, so we have a collaboration at the moment with some of our statistics folks um, looking at bringing some of their statistical methods to understanding our materials and actually that comes back to the language thing as well so they talk quite a different language in terms of very specific things so you might get a question from them of and, and were those tests taken from the same sample of powder and kind of what I mean by the same sample of powder is, well, I took a bag of powder out of the, the big box that we'd ordered, so it's all from the same batch. And what the statistics folks are saying, well, is it the, the exact same particles of powder that you tested? And, and so there's, even then there's that kind of getting to the bottom of the language. But, but I think these collaborations with different people who weren't perhaps traditionally part of the additive area is a really interesting thing it's a really good development and I think we need to keep bringing in you know, I kind of want to say anyone from any field <laughs> like let's bring them into mm. the fold and see what they can see what they can bring and see what perspectives they have and and so I think the more we keep doing that probably the the better the industry is going to evolve oh I mean you know that just goes to the heart of like cross-disciplinary teams right and and having lots of different perspectives on the table you're just going to get better results. Um, it's been really interesting for me because I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm working back at RMIT, which is actually where I studied initially for my undergrad um, and did chemical engineering. And so some of the really cool projects that we've got going um, are actually with our chemical engineering uh, colleagues um, from a different school. And it, it actually brings uh, a really great applications focus um, to our team working with them um, on a lot of different, you know, chemical engineering type applications, um, which, yeah, has, has been, been hugely beneficial. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, when you, you're bringing in 
Um, I mean, another area as well is um, machine learning, which has Mm -hmm. been actually like quite the buzzword in general, um, but also a a pretty big buzzword within the AM community. Um, But in so many ways, it just makes sense, you know, to to be able to bring machine learning into AM. Um, And as part of that, like, I mean, I've been only kind of peripherally involved in some machine learning projects. Um, But it's, it's also about us getting to know the like the um the the limitations as well mm-hmm. uh, you know and and that kind of if you can imagine like someone coming in and to a 3d printing team and being like well 3d printing you can 3d print anything right <laughs> you know, like, and I'm probably like that annoying person about machine learning right? um so yeah it's, it's about learning what the limitations are what's possible and what's realistic and um, and then, yeah, you can actually bring some really, really cool um, projects to life. Um, I'm interested to know, you mentioned you're working with industry a little bit. Um, you, I mean, the UK has been through a pretty tumultuous time in the last mm-hmm. you know, two years. Um, I mean, we, we all have, of course, um, with the global pandemic um, and the supply chain disruptions that that's brought. And that's been felt across the globe. But I feel, I mean, you know, certainly from my perspective, it seems like the UK's had that um, a bit more intensified through Brexit mm-hmm. as well. So where, like, is where is additive in that conversation? Um, is it is it more relevant, or is there, you know, is there a keener need for it, or is it just kind of been overlooked in all of the chaos? I I think it's. I I think there's been a lot of disruption, you're right, with all of this. I think additive will continue to be quite an important part of the conversation. So I think we as a a country quite early on kind of picked up on the potential for these processes. And, you know, manufacturing is really important to our economy anyway. And in particular, I think this idea of high value manufacturing. So, you know, not just making millions of standard parts and and so on. But I, I think we've... We've got some yeah. good, you know, machine manufacturers. We've got some end users who are doing really good things. But I, I think as a country, we've always focused quite, quite a lot on manufacturing. So I'm not, I'm not worried about the area kind of going backwards too much. And, and we saw lots of um, things with it. I mean, one of the obvious things was with the COVID pandemic and, you know, making equipment and respirators and ventilators and, and masks and, and uh, things like that, um, that I think it's actually probably highlighted to some people, perhaps the flexibility of, of these processes. And, and I, don't, I don't want to say that's a positive of the pandemic, because that's obviously, you know, um, the pandemic itself is not a good thing. But I, I think it perhaps has come a bit to the fore and perhaps to some people's attention that wouldn't have been aware of it before. And what we've yep. tended to see a lot is, you know, someone starts doing something and then gradually that filters down and and the companies start saying oh you know well these people are using it so we probably should be considering it but I I think the pandemic has kind of put it back on people's radar a bit I don't know if you've seen the same over in Australia um yeah so one of the things that's been quite interesting has been I mean look very similar experience um perhaps less acute than mm-hmm. in the UK, um, but but certainly a very similar experience with supply chain disruptions and things. And and look, we do have um, a bit of a distance issue as well. Um, you know, goods just need to travel a little bit further. We're, we're less 
um, we're, we're, so we're more geographically removed from our trading mm -hmm. partners. So, um, so there is some small issues there, uh, but probably, you know, primarily what it's caused Australia to focus on. And, and look, this, this is probably also, I think, a bit political as well, because we, we, we also have these geopolitical tensions happening around mm -hmm. the world. Um, of which Australia loves to um, play a part in. Um, and, um, and, and so what the, the, the big thing for us has been sovereign capability. Um, that's been a really big word like or term that's been just bandied around constantly. Um, and so it's all about building sovereign capability. And it's, it's actually, um, a, you know, if you could, you could probably liken it to the US and the US's mentality around, well, if we need to close borders tomorrow, what can we provide for for ourselves? You know, and mm -hmm. um, we need to build a certain level of capability within our own borders so that we can look after ourselves. Um, and that that mentality has come through a lot stronger through the last two years in Australia. And um, there's been uh, a, a bit more acceptance of the idea that we do need to um, uh, be able to provide for ourselves because, to be honest, the, the pandemic showed that we had these horrible gaps in our manufacturing capability um, that, yeah, Additive came in and solved a couple of, oh, don't mind my noisy birds in the background, um, Additive came in and solved a couple of those um, critical issues and actually did, did, did surprisingly well. Um, but we definitely had, I mean, we couldn't even manufacture masks, you know, and... Mm. Um, and we've let go a, a whole automotive manufacturing capability over, you know, we've slowly whittled it down over the last 15 years to the point now where it is non-existent. Now, if we were still making cars, I can tell you now we would have been able to make masks, right? Yeah, so, exactly. um, yeah. And, and so, so that, that's, that's been, um, I think a little bit of a reality check. Um, I'm not, I'm not one for saying that we need to be, you know, all kind of um, Team Australia and, and all of that. But but I do think that we have some issues in critical supply chains that were mm -hmm. never looked at before that that through the pandemic have been brought to the forefront of everyone's minds and investment in those critical supply chains is now occurring a little bit more intelligently. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's probably being a good thing. And as far as that is concerned, I mean, we had, we had very similar experiences, you know, we went into uh, making ventilators and um, additive helped with that and not to mention shields. And I know that, um, you know, RMIT, whatever I worked, we, we, we did a sort of a, a design for a shield that was for, um, Inos and throat surgeons um, that needed okay. to have particular um, kind of uh, lenses that they had to be able to use with their shields, and so and so we could integrate that. Um, but yeah, I think in general it's been more of a focus on uh, manufacturing, yeah, domestic capability in general. Well, yeah, and the, the supply chain thing is really interesting. So we had years ago now. Um, there was an explosion at a polymer factory, which really, really disrupted the, the basically the whole supply chain for polymer powders for additive manufacturing. Um, and I don't know how much you know about the processes, but you know, nylon 12 has been and continues to be by far the dominant polymer that we use in those processes. And it turned out that most of the supply of those polymer powders traced back to, I wanna say ingredients at, at that particular factory. Um, and obviously that's a really sad thing that that happened, but also it really highlighted this kind of dependence of, of everything. Um, 
And I remember speaking to a company and saying like, do you have any powder? Um, and we actually got the last 20 kilogram box of powder from a particular company. And they said, you know, the people we're supplying to that 20 kilograms is no use to them because they use, they need such big volumes of stuff. So we, we kind of got through the back door, this, this 20 kilograms of powder, which was as, as far as I understand, the last bit of powder they had in their factory. I'm, I'm um, sort of imagining some like toilet paper war-esque thing over the, mm -hmm. the last 20 kilograms of polymers. Well, and ex ex exactly. But I think you, as you move, as you move more towards this kind of end use application and you've got companies who are saying, well, what we actually want to be doing is making parts all day, every day. We need those machines to be running. Um, one of the things that came up a while ago, as well as material supply, was things like um, maintenance and how you how you keep things running and what happens when something goes wrong. Because if you're in a prototyping facility, maybe you can deal with some of those delays if something goes down. But if you're manufacturing, you know, decent volumes or decent volumes um, of parts in certain materials, or you need those machines running, you can't really say okay, we'll send someone out in a week and have a look at it and we'll, we'll try to fix it. So I think there was a lot to learn from other industries there who, um, and I, I hate comparing to 2D printing, but for the sake of this, <laughs> <Me too>. um, <laughs> for the sake of this conversation, in one of the analogies was that if you have a company that has lots of big 2D printers and they're constantly printing stuff, your service agreement is if that machine goes down, someone is out there now basically I know like within um, 12 hours right exactly. like that doesn't and, and, have any three printing <laughs> yeah and, and so there's, I think there's a lot to do with that is how can we learn from that kind of model and say well yeah if that's if all of my production or some of my production or my production of these type of components is 3d printing then I need that level of service you know as as mm. researchers we can kind of accommodate it as smaller production or, or like longer lead times that's fine but for those companies that are trying to do rapid production you just you can't have that kind of model of well we'll send someone out when we can get someone out kind of so you've got to have that infrastructure you've got to have the spare parts you've got to have all the logistics set up to to enable that machine to be fixed within you know as you say a really short period of time and so I think that's an area where the industry perhaps takes a while to catch up sometimes is, yeah, we can do these things, we can make this stuff, but what about all the other bits of the, the whole process or the whole supply chain that don't involve the bit where you're making the stuff on the machine, but mm. those, those kind of other services, the training, the maintenance, the, you know, all the kind of bits that go with it, which are not the kind of cool parts that get talked about in the presentations and everything, but that are really important yeah, so true. actually the confidence I guess of those companies very much so and I have to say from uh from from my experience in this part of the world um the the companies that uh can provide a lot of assurance around um being available uh you know service techs being re readily available they're the ones that have made the machine sales you know and they're the ones that made really a lot of headway in the early days um uh, around securing you know a pretty loyal customer base actually mm -hmm. um and uh, you know, and I understand why there wasn't the investment in our service service techs here because there just wasn't sort of the market initially. Um, but there was a few companies that were kind of really, uh, you know, who, who early on invested in service techs to be local to Australia. And so it meant, you know, it, it's a big deal. You've got to fly someone out from Germany just because your machines carked it or something. You know, mm -hmm. like, 
it's it's that is a painful process to have to go through and and it happened to me plenty of times because there was a number of my printers that turned up their toes you know or something went wrong and that we weren't given certain you know levels of permission and access to be able to fix it ourselves and um and it's not that was not I was like gee you know here we are trying to work with industry um to talk about you know potential use cases and stuff and I'm thinking mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd recommend them buy a printer tomorrow because uh, <laughs> I can I can see a lot of people getting pretty cranky pretty quickly um about this service situation I mean I think it's it's come a long way since then but yeah in the early days it was it was struggle town for sure that's part um, of our job, isn't it, though, I think, to, to kind of be realistic about it. Because you mentioned one of your bugbears. My biggest bugbear above everything is the overhyping of what the technologies can do and where they are. And it's like these, these processes are great and they have such great potential for so many things. But there's also a lot of things we need to fix. And, and I think, actually, I certainly feel a responsibility when I talk to people in industry but also when we teach our students about it to kind of be really realistic and say actually these things about it are great these things about it not so great but they're really improving and they're coming along and these other things we haven't really done much with yet and we kind of need to you know we need to bring them them up to speed but but I think it's you don't want people rushing out and buying a 3d printer and then finding that it doesn't work for what they want to do and you don't want to encourage a company to go and and get into 3D printing and then find that for whatever reason, all of these other things are a, a big obstacle to it. I think we'd rather they come into it a few years later when those things have been fixed or on their way to being fixed or when there's a bit of understanding of them rather mm. than just kind of, yeah, yeah, go get into it and kind of figure it out as you go along and, you know, cross your fingers and hope that everything works out okay. <laughs> um, which actually leads me to one of my favorite questions and I always like to ask people this um, and maybe it's a good way for us to finish off but um, I would like to know Candice what is your favorite 3D printer? Oh that's an awful question Alex. <laughs> We've, so a few years ago um, in fact my first the first PhD student I co-supervised came into the office one day and said what's your favorite manufacturing process? Oh, just, man, and, and that's we, too broad. <laughs> honestly, we all had such an argument about it. Um, but it's like, you don't want to make a snap decision. Um, I, th I think I'm going to have to say... I'm What's gonna the have one that to, speaks to your heart, Candy. <laughs> I'm going to have to go with polymer laser sintering. It's, yeah. it's where my heart was when I came into actually doing proper research and, and everything. And I think if I had to pick and get rid of everything else that's the one I'd had to keep. Also, though, um, because our laser sintering machine is the machine that my wedding flowers were printed on. So I don't oh. think I could, yeah, if I picked anything else, and, and you know, the honest answer is many of the different processes have lots of benefits. They're all good for different yeah, things. Yeah, you don't have to be diplomatic yeah, you, with this answer. <laughs> if, if you made me pick one, though, I'd, I'd keep the laser sintering machine. So um, sorry, your wedding flowers were made how? <laughs> we we laser scented them. Um, so a, a good friend of mine, Guy Bingham, designed them, um, did all the CAD for them, and then we printed them. So Wendy Bertwistle, one of our technicians, printed it on our laser sintering machine. Um, and as I think you know, I got married in the US, so then had to carry them in a cardboard box <laughs> with oh. lots of foam packing bits all the way on the flight to the US, and then an internal flight on from there. And 
Yeah, Meanwhile, the wedding it. dress you're probably just shoving in the, you know, in the suitcase. Just oh, like, oh, it'll be fine. fine but, yeah. But do not touch my 3D printed flowers. <laughs> well, and I'd kind of, I'd gone through this process of thinking, right, who do I know nearby? So we were getting married in Indiana, um, which is not too far from Louisville. Um, and I knew that they'd got 3D printers there and I knew people there that I was like, if I absolutely had to, I could probably phone them up and say, this is, this is an additive manufacturing emergency. I, you need to drop everything, get these flowers on, and then can you somehow get them to me? Um, but yeah, they were fine when I got there. Um, I just, you know, every time anyone went near that box on the plane, it was kind of eyes on them, like, don't touch. <laughs> and um, how did they go on the day? Oh, lovely. Yeah, they were perfect. Yeah. Um, I, I think it was one of those things where I knew they'd be fine. But there was always that bit in the back of my mind of like, oh, what if I turn up and they've just been crushed by someone's suitcase or something like that and, yeah. and everything. But um, I think, I think you know, the bride gets to to have a hissy fit about whatever they want to have a hissy fit about. <laughs> you know, like if, if the flowers were your one thing that you just really wanted and you were very nervous about it, then, you know, you're, you're allowed to guard that like a fork. That's that's completely understandable. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you a different question, actually. So not the, the process one. Um, I'm sorry if you had a really good answer prepared for that. Yeah. Uh, um, so, so I think an interesting thing to think about is what's your, what would be your one big wish for additive manufacturing, like over the next few years? Like, what would you, what would you love to see in additive manufacturing? Oh, goodness me. Uh, <laughs> um well you definitely got me stumped <laughs> you know what it's a real tension between like really audacious aspirational stuff versus mm -hmm. really boring but very important stuff I think you can um, get them both <laughs> yeah so I mean I... <laughs> um I mean for the more aspirational stuff, uh, and, and this is, um, I mean, it's not actually a, a wish that would necessarily go unfulfilled, but um, I just love what startups do in, in additive, right? Mm -hmm. I, I just, you know, I just, this has been my, my um, kind of enduring experience of additive has been, uh, it's always the startups that surprise you. It's always the startups that, that bring um, real innovation to the table. And um, it's, it's one of the things when I started out in additive, I really thought it was going to be industry that was going to be like, you know, existing industry it was going to be the real you know, main adopter of additive because, you know, it's just another manufacturing tool. What's the big, you know, what's the big issue? Um, so I really thought that they would be the, the early adopters, but no, um, it was very much the startups um, that, that were very uh, bullish around what they could do. And, and like I said, really brought a lot of innovation to the table. And so I just love to see, you know, all around the world, what startups are capable of doing um, and bringing to the table. So, you know, as far as um, aspirations, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to just see loads more startups, you know, come and enter additive, you know, with, with solid ideas, obviously, mm -hmm. not fluff. Um, uh, so, so that would be one. But then on the other hand, um, like I said, uh, you know, being much more boring, um, but also extremely important, uh, which is around, um, I just want it to be more damn reliable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I'm sick of printers breaking, <laughs> you know, um, 
and um and I'm 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 you know I I would like uh I would like vendors to just be you know way more upfront about machines capabilities um and then also um you know for for those for those parts that are going through those qualification processes well you know I mean I guess if I could have one wish it would be for that that um process to be somehow shortened you know and and I think there is a number of different ideas around how we qualify faster mm-hmm. um but you know we I think we all know that we need to get to a point where we are not using our current qualification frameworks um you know where we can get to a point where we look a lot more like real manufacturing and a lot less like uh, an experimental technology that we happen to be using for serial production <laughs> so <laughs> I did hear someone said years ago, um, and, and again, it really stuck with me. They were talking about the fact that we are still using, we're still using printers that were basically designed for prototyping that we've kind mm. of tweaked and we've made them a bit faster or a bit bigger or a bit more productive. And I think the same is probably true with the, the qualification side, isn't it? It's like we're still, again, we're trying to catch up with, with those things and say, um, and I heard it put best in terms of just quality control. Um, and it was, it was one of the first things that I remember hearing about it was someone saying, well, we're building in layers. So every time we do a layer, we have this opportunity to, to look at what's happening inside the part. And, you know, is it, is it right? Um, mm. <laughs> again, I say yeah. that in inverted commas, but, you know, you've, you've got this ability every single layer to say, is that layer correct? And if all those layers are correct, does that mean that the whole part is, is correct? And, and I think we are seeing some really interesting technologies coming through interesting applications of existing technologies into that area but I I tend to agree if we can if we can speed up that process and say actually we're we're getting to the point where we know that everything is as it's meant to be and and that's good enough you know that's a really powerful step forward I think for the for the industry in general yeah 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 definitely um and and you know like also on the post processing side, um, you know, I mean, how do we <laughs> how do we get to a point where we don't have such a heavy post processing burden? I think that would be be fantastic. And obviously, that's very application specific and very industry specific as well, and and sometimes material specific. Um, but uh, yeah, the what's become so much clearer over the last probably five years, um, particularly as we're pushing more and more into industry, has been. Uh, wow, processing is a real pain, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it's, it's quite expensive. Um, and and we're seeing some pretty cool solutions coming onto the market now. Again, you know, through through the startups, actually, mm-hmm. um, who know that well, it's a pain point, so we're going to be here to solve it. 